Father, we give you thanks. And we start with thanks because we believe that a posture of thankfulness is an important element of a deep faith. For it acknowledges our dependence upon you. It acknowledges the fact that we're not able to do everything ourselves. We need to say thank you to you because you've done so much for us. And in that posture of humility, Lord, this morning we come to you to worship you. We thank you that we've been able to do that in the songs that we've been singing and in the quiet moments that we will experience through the times of meeting today. Lord, we invite your spirit to speak to us as we do each time, as we sit together in this corporate way. Father, we give you thanks for the opportunity that we have to meet today, but also in other contexts. We thank you for the opportunity to uh, have conversations with people who are here and we pray that they will be more than just conversations about the weather or work but that they will be conversations that will edify that will build up that will encourage that will turn hearts towards you and so lord we pray that you will help us to be mindful of the attitude and the posture that we adopt even as we worship and then afterwards that we might be ambassadors of christ lord we give you thanks for our night service recommencing and for those who have in the past um, typically attended in that space we thank you lord for the strength that there has been through this season in the gatherings of our young adults as they've organized activities in an ad hoc kind of a manner but a manner which has kept connection and encouraged people and and not has only maintained the status quo lord but has grown against all odds in a sense but as a witness and testimony to you and to the faithfulness of your servants Lord, even though we've had to change the structure of our service tonight in light of um, the challenges of isolation for some, we know that you will be present and we pray, Lord, that you will use that time. Lord, we give you thanks that we can gather and sit under the teaching of your word. We're thankful, Lord, that we don't have to be fearful of what others around us might say or of persecution or censure because we say what we believe the word and what the spirit is saying to us. Lord, we don't take that freedom for granted. We thank you, Lord, too, for opportunities to gather for prayer, for opportunities to gather for fellowship, for opportunities to express hospitality to one another, for the opportunities to acknowledge your goodness to us in so many ways. And even as we reflect on an interesting past couple of years, you have demonstrated your faithfulness again and again and again. And so, so many of the things that we were worried and anxious about, so many of the things that uh, kept us awake at night, never came to pass, never came to fruition. Lord, chasten us in our unfaithfulness. Help us to humbly accept that you remain the Lord who is on the throne, that you are completely trustworthy, that you are good, and that you will continue to show the way forward for your people. Lord, we just want to give you thanks in our hearts. We pause in this moment for each person here today to name some of those things. And so feel free right now in the context of this prayer just to say, Lord, I thank you for, and complete that sentence. I thank you for my family. I thank you for friends. I thank you for worship. I thank you for work. I thank you for a home.
Holy Spirit, we look, at, look to you now to enliven us, to teach us, to grow us in Christ-likeness. And offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Grab uh, your Bible if you've got it there. If you're not, um, if you're not using a, a Bible as in a paper version, your other device or whatever it might be, this is a kind of a special one. It was given to me a few years ago, but it's not the first Bible that I was given. Back when I was about eight years old, I was given a Bible by my parents on the cover or just on the inside. It was presented to David Hodgins by his mummy and daddy on his eighth birthday, I think, back in 1872 or somewhere around there. <laughs> and it was a very special Bible. It was special for a couple of reasons. First of all, it was kind of written in language that an eight-year-old could understand, although it didn't compromise the text in any way. And it was special because it had lots of really, really good pictures, you know, um, watercolours of some of the big events that there were in uh, the stories of the Bible, scattered right through from the very start to the very end. Great pictures. I think I might have shown you one or two of those in the past. And mum and dad encouraged me to take my own Bible to church, which is a great habit to get into. And then during the um, <laughs> long and boring sermons, <laughs> when you're eight, <laughs> I'd read through the stories and that was great, you know, it was good fun. I loved reading how, uh, against all the odds, Moses managed to escape with the Israelites from the Egyptians. You remember that story? How could that happen but, but for the marvellous intervention of God? And there was um, cheering, inward cheering, when um, David and Goliath faced off against one another. You know, David, a diminutive young boy, really, against that giant of a man. That was the last thing that went through Goliath's mind when he was uh, facing David. I think I've told you this joke. It was a rock. <laughs> what a great story, again, of God's capacity. It was awesome. I just loved reading through... Um, the, uh, the New Testament Gospels and you could see, uh, even at that stage, you could see the self-righteousness of the Pharisees who, who wanted to be seen and to be known as the, uh, the keepers of the law and Jesus just brought them down to size time and time again with the simplest, most penetrating kind of teaching and the people, as Scripture says, the people were delighted uh, by what they heard. But then... Every now and again I'd come across a story and think, that didn't seem so fair. You know, there's lots of stories where your sense of natural justice is served, like the ones I've just talked about, but then there were some others that I thought, that's something, something kind of doesn't resonate in that story for me. The parable of the talents is one of them. Have you ever thought about that? You know, for the most part, we talk about the parable of the talents, as you know, it's kind of a, a metaphor of God gives us gifts that we need to use and if we don't use them, well, you know, there's, uh, that's irresponsible. But there's something concerns me in that passage that talks about when um, the third guy who, if you remember the story, he went and buried the, the, whatever it was, we assume it was money, he went and buried it in the field when he... When he gave an account to the master, he said to the master, I knew that you were a cruel and harsh man. You reaped where you did not sow. Is that God? And part of me was thinking, and this is perhaps my conservative nature, part of me was thinking that guy actually behaved in a pretty sensible way. He didn't risk the money, did he? 
He gave it back, he kept it safe. What's going on in that story? There must be more to it. And I think there is some more to it. We'll preach on that another day. There is another one. I'll just leave you hanging with that one. Um, another one that used to trouble me is this one that's up on the screen here, uh, the story of Martha and Mary. Because it was kind of, I wouldn't say drummed into us, but the message, the, the subtle message was in this story of Martha and Mary, Martha who was busy in the kitchen and Mary who was sitting at the feet of Jesus. You need to be like Mary, be contemplative, be spiritual. Martha bad, Mary good. That was kind of the, the message that was subtly communicated and that didn't sit so well with me. There was something a bit unsatisfying in that because I was always wondering if Jesus and his disciples turned up at this house and no one cooked for them, what were they going to eat? Someone had to do it. Somewhat problematic that um, Martha should be expected just to abandon the kitchen. Why would Jesus seem to rebuke her for attending to what in her culture was one of the highest values? It seems just an interesting question. There must be more to that story than meets the eye and so this morning we're going to unpack that story um, around this statement that's made by Jesus in verse 42. Only one thing is needed. What is that one thing? that is needed let's have a look at the passage it's up on the screen luke writes as jesus and his disciples were on their way he came to a village where a woman named martha opened her home to him she had a sister called mary who sat at the lord's feet listening to what he said but martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made she came to him and asked lord don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself tell her to help me Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Only one thing is needed, it will not be taken away from her. What was it that Mary had chosen? If you go looking for this story outside the Gospel of Luke, you won't find it. It's interesting that this, uh, that this little snapshot of life uh, in Jesus' life was only told by Luke. And Luke starts with a sentence that we could easily skip over, but I think is rather important, where he says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way. Where were they going to? They were on their way somewhere. Well, from the broader context... And in the context of the Gospel of Luke, we know that Jesus was on his way up to Jerusalem. And in the very broad context of uh, the Gospel of Luke, this was the last time. Typically, Jesus and his family, and, and as, a, as an adult, uh, went to Jerusalem for the festival each year. That was the pattern that the Jewish people adopted. But this time, it was for the last time. And Luke doesn't tell us the name of the village uh, that he mentions here in verse 38, but we know again from the broader context of the scriptures it was a village called Bethany. Now Bethany is not actually all that far from Jerusalem. In fact, if you leave the city of Jerusalem, walk across the valley and up onto the Mount of Olives, you can see Bethany. It's just over the brow of the hill, maybe four kilometres as the crow flies from Bethany to Jerusalem. So not terribly far 
away. We don't know much from the scripture about Martha, although there is a bit of information that is very, very interesting. The fact that she is named as the one who welcomed Jesus into her home suggests that Martha might actually have been quite a wealthy woman. She was named, in effect, as the home owner. It's possible that she was the eldest in the family because she was named in priority to her sister Mary and her brother Lazarus and that's really interesting because normally in the Jewish culture the guy would have been mentioned first but here Martha is mentioned first so she's a woman of some significance Uh, no husband is mentioned we're not sure what her uh, life had been up to this point and although she is sometimes um, cast as a woman who was distracted by domestic duties Martha was actually a woman of great faith she was uh, if you go to um, John chapter 11 where we meet Martha again when her brother Lazarus had died it was Martha who said to Jesus these words really significant words if you had been here my brother would not have died isn't that an amazing statement Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You can't say that to just anybody. She had a a deep faith in who Jesus was. And even in the face, and this is in John chapter 11, verse 22, even in the face of what for her must have seemed like an impossible situation, her brother Lazarus had been dead for some days. She said to Jesus, but even I know now that God will give you whatever you ask. Wow. Now, this guy, Lazarus, her dearly loved brother, has been dead for days. But even now, Jesus, I know whatever you ask, God will give it to you. <coughs> That's an amazing declaration of a per- from a person who uh, believed that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, it was Martha who said these words, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. You don't find that declaration on too many people's lips in the Gospels. But you do on Martha's lips. It's clear too, (coughs) pardon me, that Martha was also a woman who was given to action. In the same chapter, chapter 11 in John, when she heard that Jesus was coming, what did Martha do? Martha went and ran down the road to meet him. She met him on the road on his way. Mary didn't come with her. Martha went out and met him. When, uh, when Jesus went to the graveside of Lazarus, imagine uh, a, a rough hillside with a grave hewn into the rock, just a cave perhaps with a stone that somehow blocked up the entrance, typical of that time, typical of a grave of a person who had some means. It was Martha... I love this story. It was Martha who, when Jesus was standing before the grave, felt it necessary to say to Jesus, "Um, you might just want to think about what you're about to do here. He's been dead for four days. If we open up that stone, could be a little bit. The old King James, I think it says, by now, Lord, he will stinketh. So you can see just how practical a bent Martha was, uh, a practical woman of faith. And when Jesus arrived in Bethany, it was Martha who in classic Middle Eastern style 
offered hospitality by inviting Jesus and his disciples into her home. Now, here's an interesting question. How many disciples were there? Don't answer that. Because we don't know. It could be anywhere between Jesus and the Twelve or Jesus and the Twelve and Seventy-Two. Because only just a few moments, well moments, uh, if we back up in the chapter, um, starting here in chapter 10, Jesus sent out the 72, 72 disciples. We often only think, you know, Jesus had 12 disciples. Well, that's not the case. He had many disciples, 72 of them here, who went out. It's possible that Jesus turned up at Martha's home with a crowd. And not just one or two, possibly as many as 80 people. And so Martha, in her indomitable style, immediately turned her attention to hospitality as any good Middle Eastern person would, even to this very day, one of the highest priorities in the culture. And a high priority through the scripture, if you go right back to Genesis, let me just get the chapter here, Genesis chapter 18, remember Abram sitting down by the entrance to his tent and three angelic visitors appear, they look for all the world like men. What does Abram do? He says, come in, come and find some rest, have something to drink. Quickly, Sarah, go and kill the cup. Let's prepare a meal, hospitality. Right at the start of the scripture, uh, a very high priority. And you go through the Bible and time and time and time and time and time again. And I emphasize the time and time and time and time again because that's the reality hospitality was demonstrated as one of the ways that God's people were to reach out to others even to Romans chapter 12 where Paul says very bluntly to the church be hospitable Martha was doing what was biblically appropriate and if uh, if we're preaching another focus today I would say too uh, one of the streams of thoughts or the threads that runs through the gospel of luke is that hospitality is a sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom if have a look at um, luke chapter 10 for instance where jesus gave some instruction to those 72 he said in chapter 10 verse 5 when you enter a house first say peace to this house if a man of peace is there your peace will rest on him if not it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you. Hospitality is a sign that the kingdom's at work. In chapter 10, verse 8, when you enter a town uh, and are welcomed, eat what is set before you, heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. Eat with them, heal the sick, proclaim the kingdom. You remember the Bless series we did ages ago? Begin with prayer, listen carefully, eat together story and service it's all there in this gospel but here's an interesting question did jesus really want martha to go wild in the kitchen was that what martha sorry what uh, was what martha hurried to do what jesus needed or was it what Martha needed? Is that question making sense? Let me ask it another way. Was Martha doing what Martha wanted to do or what Jesus wanted her to do? 
It's a rather interesting question because there are times where we want to be kind to people, there are times where we want to serve people, but sometimes we fall into the trap of being kind in the way that we think kindness should be expressed or we serve in the way that we think service should be expressed. When I was teaching in the field of community development a few years ago, one of the things that we used to hammer time and time and time and time and time and time again was that whenever you're working in a community, you need to ask the people what it is that they want. Don't go in as a, as a developer, as a, a, an outside expert, assuming that you know what they need, because you don't. You need to ask them what they need. Here's a classic trap. Uh, you go into a context where agriculture is, is really struggling, people are still using sticks and rudimentary kind of implements to turn over their fields, and so the, the, the rich Western person comes and says, I know what you need, you need a tractor. Good answer, right? Because if you've got a tractor, you will be able to do all this work in half the time. No, less than half the time, a tenth of the time. So let's get you a tractor. Now the problem, of course, with that is there's no one there who knows how to drive a tractor. No one knows how to service a tractor. There's all sorts of issues that are raised around ownership and use of the tractor. And so typically what happens in those kind of contexts is a nice tractor is delivered and a year or two later it's rusting under a tree. And the person who does the development says, oh, well, these people just don't know how to do stuff. But what actually was the problem was that they didn't write the ask, ask the right questions. And so in thinking about service, sometimes we need to learn to ask the right questions. Some commentators, and I'm not sure whether they're right or not, have speculated in this context. As Jesus was approaching Jerusalem for this last time, remember, he was carrying with him the burden of the knowledge of what was about to happen. Can you imagine the weight of that? Have you ever had that kind of... I'm trying to think of a time when, when we might carry something. It's never going to be like what Jesus must have been carrying, but... Um, have you ever gone into an exam unprepared? None of us. Probably some of us. What's that feeling like? You wake up in the morning with an, an impending sense of, what's a good word? Dread? Anxiety? Uncertainty? Fearfulness? All very human emotions. We can speculate, we don't know, but we can speculate that as Jesus was approaching uh, Jerusalem for the last time, there was a certain heaviness that he carried. And it's possible some of the folks who speculate on this have posited that the last thing Jesus was looking for was a big party. It might have been wise for Martha to have asked him, how can I serve you at the moment? Of course, she didn't know what was happening, but uh, it might have been wise for her to do that. Perhaps and I think it's possibly a little bit unfair um, to even speculate like this because it's a reflection framed with a degree of smug but unfounded criticism of Martha and also the benefit of hindsight. But it does actually raise a really important question and this is the question that I want us to think about. What is it that motivates our service? 
Because Christians have had a long history of saying, I'm going to go and do this and choosing what it is that they want to do, making up their minds about what they want to do, embarking on it and then labelling it as service of God and in the process hope that God might keep up. When Jesus challenged Martha, it was not on the basis of what she was doing. In fact, what she was doing was a very good and necessary thing. It was actually a challenge to her on the motivation behind what she was doing. And in the midst of what she was doing, it's clear from the text that she was not happy. In verse 39, if you have a look at the text here with me, if you've got your Bible there, you'll find that Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, just pause on that point for a second because that's scandalous. In the context of the Middle Eastern culture, that is scandalous. No woman would sit at the foot of a rabbi and yet here is Mary doing that. And how does Jesus handle that? He affirms it. And so, ladies, if you wanted to know uh, what Jesus thinks about uh, uh, women disciples, here is one of the great affirmations of the scripture. By his posture, Jesus affirms in this moment forever the place of women in the company of disciples. In Christ there is no slave or free, male or female. Salvation and discipleship is open to all. But while Mary was doing that, Martha was out in the kitchen and goodness me, the potatoes have just boiled over. And so in desperation, she ran into the room uh, where Jesus was and appealed to him with every expectation that he would support her Uh, case because culturally she was in the right and she said Lord don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself tell her to help me you've got to give Martha some credit here because she went right to the person that she believed was going to be able to help her but hear what she says notice the language in her appeal my sister has left me to do all the work by myself Tell her to help me. And although she's appealed to Jesus and she's sure that Jesus is the one who can help her, she wants to engage Jesus in her plans and not engage in his plans. I remember a story um, that happened in my youth in the church. I don't know all the details, a little bit of haziness around this, so I'll tell you... Uh, what I do know. There was a lady who had served faithfully in one area of ministry for many, many, many years. For those of us who grew up in the church, it would have seemed like she had been there forever, which would be true, because that was all of our experience. She had always been there forever. For whatever reason, I don't know what the reasons were, at some point, some time, the church pastor, the leadership, decided to restructure or do something there, and her role was changed. And my goodness, that did cause her some grief. I don't know all of the details. Perhaps the church leadership had communicated their intentions badly. Perhaps they'd failed to articulate their vision. Perhaps they hadn't explained their reasons. But I remember her lament was this. They have taken away my ministry And so far as I could tell, just from looking at it from a long way away, she never really recovered from what she felt was a personal affront to her desire to serve in the role that she had. 
and in time she moved on to another church and went and worshipped elsewhere. Now, as I said, I don't know all of the story, all of its context, but as a young person there was a really important take-home lesson, something that I believe the Lord said to me in this context, and that is that I should never become so focused on what I do in service for the Lord to believe that it's about me. Because it's always about Jesus. If I become so concerned about protecting my territory or the things that I do or the area that I have responsibility in, uh, there's a risk that I'm not engaging in self-sacrificial service but self-service. And I can't wonder whether there was an element of that creeping into Martha's heart. She was doing what she did well because that's what she knew she could do. Now, it might not have been the case for Martha and it might not have been the case in that illustration that I've just shared with you. But here's an important point. My service isn't about me. What I do for the Lord is for the Lord. And in this season, as we face uh, new opportunities and new challenges, it's one of the questions that we have to ask. What am I going to be able to do to serve the Lord? Because lots of things are changing around about us. We could spend quite a bit of time thinking about how many of the, the, the ministries that we've done in the past have, have stopped for the time being, have stopped forever or may never restart again. There are some people here, for instance, who might have just loved collecting the offering. Poor illustration, I know. But if that was your sweet spot, we're not doing that anymore. And that's awkward sometimes. We must always keep in mind that whatever it is that we do, whether we can do what we love or have to do something else, is actually about serving Christ. There was another trap that Martha had fallen into as well, uh, the trap of comparison. This is a a really um, challenging one. It's quite clear as we look at the personalities of Mary and Martha that in many respects they were like chalk and cheese, weren't they? Martha was the one who was given to action, Mary to contemplation. Martha to doing, Mary to being. Is one better than the other? Not at all. But there's great danger in comparing one to the other, a temptation that Martha had been seduced by. And I suspect that in normal circumstances, preparing a meal was right in Martha's sweet spot. In fact, if you go to the Gospel of John, uh, when Jesus is at the house of Simon, Martha's there preparing food again. She just loved that stuff. She was good at it. Pretty much every time we meet her in the Gospels, she's at the hospitality caper. It's clear that it was something she was passionate about. And that's good. But if we start comparing ourselves with others, our service is robbed of joy. And I've talked to people who've done this over the years. You know, if only I could be like this person. You know, that ministry is so important and I don't have anything that I can offer really. And when we start comparing ourselves to what others do or contribute, not only are we at risk of having our joy stolen, we develop a heart of contempt. We develop a heart of contempt that may be directed towards that other person. Yeah, look at all the attention that they're getting. We risk of developing a heart of contempt towards ourselves. I'm not very important. I'm only a tiny little 
cog in this machine of the kingdom. <laughs> I remember the very first Sunday I was here, I was talking to a couple of our young adults out, outside. I won't name these people uh, because they're beautiful souls. And one of them, in a sense of him now, this t- I didn't know this guy from it was the first conversation that I had with him. Um, and he said to me, uh, won't take you long to find out that I'm a pretty big wheel around this place. <laughs> and I thought to myself, that's an interesting way to start a conversation with a new pastor. Um, as it turns out, this person does make a significant contribution too, but he's no bigger wheel than anyone else. The other risk, of course, in comparing ourselves to others is actually we develop a heart of contempt towards God. Why hasn't God gifted me like other people? It's a danger. A danger that um, Martha was flirting with there. It's interesting if you go to Nehemiah chapter 3, we haven't got time to unpack this, but in Nehemiah chapter 3 as they were rebuilding the wall, have a look at what's going on there. There's all sorts of people rebuilding the wall perfumers, goldsmiths, sons, daughters, nobles, ordinary people. Everybody's at work and the take-home message from Nehemiah chapter 3 is cooperation, not comparison and certainly not competition with one another either. And then we come to verse 42, verse 41 and 42 which is beautiful and challenging where Jesus says, Martha, Martha, I have that sense of real compassion in what Jesus was saying you are worried and upset about many things because Christ can see the heart. He knows what's going on for Martha. Jesus doesn't rebuke her for what she's doing. At no stage did he say, stop preparing the meal. Her service is positive. But Jesus' concern is that her service was characterised by distraction and anxiety and those things inhibit the development of true faith and the kind of hospitality that Jesus was looking for. Martha was a woman of prodigious capacity when it came to hospitality, but she was at risk of losing that focus on the one she was serving. And then in the context of this, Jesus says, but only one thing is needed. What is that one thing? Well, in his enigmatic kind of way, Luke doesn't articulate what that one thing is and neither does Jesus. He just says, Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. But we can deduce from this passage that what Jesus is talking about here is, I want you to focus on me. In terms of your service, I want the priority to be me. In terms of your hospitality, I want your priority to be me. Not to dispense with the important and necessary acts of cooking a meal or doing the dishes or clearing the bathroom. Those things need to happen. But even in the midst of that, to make Jesus the priority. Mary had chosen to prioritise the guest who had come into their house, the guest that they recognised as the Messiah. This theme of hospitality that I've talked about running richly through this passage Uh, describes the kind of hospitality that Jesus is looking for, hospitality that has him at the focus. So why speak about this today? Why at the start of the year talk on this topic? Well, to be frankly honest with you, we are at a place of, uh, of some significant challenge and great difference to where we've been before in terms of service and ministry. 
as I said a moment ago, lots of ministries have changed. There's some things that we've had to quietly uh, put to bed, so to speak, because those who were serving have just got to that point where they can't, we're uh, unable to do certain things, the restrictions that the church uh, works with and our elders have continued to walk that line of obedience under the law has meant that in some cases opportunities for people to do what they love or are passionate about are currently unable to be fulfilled. There are gaps in, in our service and our needs here that are going to need to be filled by others. And the question that we need to think about is what is actually making Jesus a priority in that space look like? I kind of wonder what it would have been like if my friends whose ministry changed had actually asked that question. Instead of angsting over the loss of opportunity, if she'd said, okay, Lord, it's perhaps not what I was expecting might happen, but you're still Lord. Let me find other ways that I can serve you. I'm going to make you a priority no matter what. I suspect that it would have made a difference because... When we keep Jesus at the centre, he has a strange and wonderful way of bringing other things together that used to be a source of anxiety and worry, bringing perspective and correction. You see, one of the abiding messages of the scripture is this, the road to experiencing fullness in the life of the kingdom in this life now is not found in asserting our rights to serve God as we think we should, but in relinquishing personal ambition with a concurrent commitment to self-sacrificing service of God and others. The way of life in Christ, quite simply, is by the way of the cross. The way of sacrificial service, of suffering, of death and of denial of self. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for the testimony and witness of the scripture. And in the unpacking of this story of Martha and Mary today, no doubt there are so many things we've missed, we've perhaps not understood, have not been communicated clearly. As I've been speaking about them, Lord, let your spirit bring correction, fill the gaps, challenge our hearts. And above all, Lord, today we pray that you will open our hearts to hear what you are saying to us. The clear message that you, Lord Jesus, must always be at the centre of our service, of our acts of hospitality, of our desire to, uh, to engage in your kingdom, and that other things will fall into place, will take their right priority in light of that. Lord Jesus, it's you that we honour and worship, it's you that we elevate, it's you that we glorify today. And so pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you, Alan.